Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Emily Bosco. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And have a wonderful time. it still was. There's something about winter when there's snow. Well, I'm currently looking out my window at a snowy Connecticut, but like winter after Christmas is just so sad. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Although I I am also, (laughs) I am also currently looking out my window at a very snowy Iowa. Um, we got hit pretty hard last night and so it's, yeah, the the plow made it through. The roads are clear, but it's that it's that nice, clean, white, fluffy snow. Oh, lovely! You should go outside and make a snowball yeah. after this. Uh, I might go outside and make a snow angel after this. Yeah, It'd rediscover yeah. your inner child. <laughs> That's what you got to do. That's what you have to look forward to when it's no longer Christmas. You're right. But it is still winter. Is like sledding, snow angels. Yeah. Frostbite. <laughs> Frostbite. Oh my God. My friend had a baby. Oh goodness. In November. So, I mean, just a few months ago. So he's really, really teeny. And she put up a picture on Instagram of his first snow angel. <laughs> she just like Aww. put him in a snowsuit and like, you know, moved his arms and legs for him. But she was like, he did it. <laughs> this is too adorable. <laughs> Never mind that a baby snow angel would just kind of look like some sort of squid esque fucking like. <laughs> Snow Cthulhu monster. <laughs> well, if you want to look at it like that. <laughs> they don't know how to move their arms that way. It'd be hilarious. No, but that's why it's so cute to pretend they yeah. do. <laughs> and they're like, he's so advanced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he really did do it. He's just really mature. He's for really mature. <laughs> he knows how to move his arms at the same time. <laughs> Hey, for like three months old, that's pretty advanced. That's yeah, it's not bad. Uh, hey, listener, how you doing? What's How's up? Welcome, welcome to Baby Talk. Well, welcome, welcome to Babies and Snow, a <laughs> fan cast all about babies. Yep. And snow. Oh my uh, so last week I meant to do a thing that I forgot to do, and I apologize, listener. How dare you? Uh, if, how dare if you? If you listened in, if you listened in two weeks ago. You heard me agree to try to write a country song uh, based on the line, I'm going to stay where I am as long as the girls stay hot and the fish keep biting. (laughs) Um, I did write that song. Uh, I recorded that song and you can get the full version of it on our Patreon page if you support 5050 Arts Production and Campfire Classics for as little as $2 a month. Um, But I wanted to play a little bit of it right here just to prove that I actually wrote it. So uh, you can hear that now. I'm going to stay where I am. There's no use fighting if the girls are hot and the big old fish keep biting. One more time, mama stay where I am. There's no use fighting if the girls stay hot and the big old fish keep biting. That is that is so crazy. I could never. <laughs> uh you probably could. Um it's not uh I don't know. You put words together and then you throw music under it. And look, it's a song. He's so humble. It's very impressive. (laughs) (laughs) Iowa seems to be a very creatively fruitful place for you. Uh, Yeah, it's been all right. I mean, it's where this podcast started. So so that's cool. Um, Okay, I'm excited. I'm excited about this week's story. I want to I tell you facts. Cool. Uh, so, uh, dear listener, um, this obviously is not a Snow and Babies podcast. This is, in fact, a, uh, a literary comedy podcast where every week your hosts take turns 
reading stories that we found out of the public domain, uh, which means most of the time these stories are kind of old, although sometimes they're not quite so old because um, that's how public domain works. And uh, we read them sight unseen. You're hearing us sight read them for the first time. And so things get weird. And we roast things them. get sexual. Things get uncomfortable at times. And uh, you're just there along for the ride with us as we discover <laughs> what these old-timey authors um, thought was good writing back in their day. Uh, I love it. To be fair, usually it is actually very good writing. We're just yeah. Most most of it holds and, up. Most of it yeah, holds right? up. <laughs> uh, but before we get into the reading of the story, uh, we always like to share a few little um, fun facts, a few little tidbits, usually about the author of the story. Although if it's an author we've read before, sometimes we'll talk about something else. But the idea is just to give us some historical context and put us in. Uh, in the mood for whatever story we're going to read. And this week, Emily has a story for me to read, so she's going to kick things off with with some fun facts. Yeah, 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 fun facts. Okay, I'm really excited because this week we have a true lady badass um, who okay. it's actually... I mean, it's kind of crazy that this podcast hasn't covered her yet, but I don't think you have. I went back through the archives. Um, So she is American novelist, short story writer, and poet, best known as the author of Little Women and its sequels, Little Men and Joe's Boys, Louisa May Alcott. I don't think we've covered Alcott. Yay. Okay, she's so cool. Her life was crazy. In In fairness, I only think of her as novelist of Little Women. I know most um, people do. So it never occurred to me that she might have short stories we could read. I know. Well, let me blow your mind. <laughs> let me blow your mind. <laughs> All right. Let's do so, it. She was born in Pennsylvania, 1832, raised in New England by transcendentalist parents, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically this philosophy and the core belief is in like the inherent goodness of people and nature and that like society and all of its institutions are basically responsible for all human corruption. So like the hippies, the early hippies, basically. Um, Got yeah, it. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. And because of her cool hippie to be parents, she grew up around all these prominent literary transcendentalists like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who has one of my all favorite right. names of all time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she has. So she's all got the nature, the all the nature guys. She's around all the yeah. nature guys. <laughs> Unfortunately, her dad is not quite in line with these philosophies. He's kind of a hard ass. He's like puritanical. He's all about self-reliance, even though self-reliance is a, a, a work by one of those those guys. But he's more like he has very old fashioned ideas about like gender roles and, and child rearing. So this leads him to have a lot of conflict with his wife and his daughter, who is very wild and independent and like hard for him to control. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Fair yes. enough. So he's he's the he's the what? <laughs> 1830s prototype of the um conservative dad with from, the from Footloose with the like <laughs> from Footloose yeah he's like no dancing with, with the like with the like flower power daughter yeah exactly he sounds like just kind of a dick and so Louisa's mother Abigail points this out to her daughter and is like you know, your dad doesn't appreciate all the work that I do and all the sacrifices that I've made, which makes sense because like she pointed this out to Louisa as an example of like a greater societal gender disparity. And that theme shows up a lot in her works, obviously, if you've read Little Women. Um, So the Alcott family moves around a lot. They are in 22 homes in 30 years, including several. (laughs) No, I know. Including several agrarian communities of like-minded naturalists and transcendentalists. So hippie communes, whatever. And she takes on work at an early age as a teacher, a seamstress, a governess, a domestic helper, and a writer. And her sisters also do this. They support the family, too, mostly as seamstresses. Um, And so... So that's their childhood. And then in 1847, when Louisa's 15, she and her family serve as station masters on the Underground Railroad, which means that they hide slaves in their house. Just so freaking cool. Yeah. And during this time, she's also reading and admiring the Declaration of Sentiments that was published by the Seneca Falls Convention on Women's Rights. And she's advocating for suffrage, obviously. Um, Yeah, she was actually also the first woman to register to vote in Concord, Massachusetts in a school board election. Isn't that cool? (laughs) That's awesome. She was like, yeah, I'm first. 
So unsurprisingly, as an adult, she grows up to be an abolitionist, a feminist, and in 1860, she starts writing for the Atlantic Monthly. And when the Civil War breaks out, she serves as a nurse in the Union Hospital in Georgetown, D.C. Okay. And her letters the home- Civil War breaks out. So she's like, she's like 30-ish? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 28 or something. Um, let's see what else. Oh, her letters that she writes home are published in the Boston anti-slavery paper called Commonwealth, and they're collected as a book that's called Hospital Sketches. And those actually brought her a lot of recognition for her observations and humor, which I'm oh. very curious to read that too, because I'm like, if she's a nurse in a Civil War hospital and people are like, yuck, yuck, that's hilarious. Like what <laughs> funny stories could she have had? But I don't know. Apparently, like apparently it was funny. <laughs> well, you know, bullet wounds and amputations. <laughs> right. Just it's like, and then the blood was everywhere. Hardy heart. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but well, I'd be I suppose you could be there, you know, jokes about, yeah, I was up to my elbows in people's elbows. Oh no. Oh God. <laughs> um, so she also, this, I didn't know. She went on to write one of the earliest works of detective fiction in American literature with the 1865 thriller, uh, the 1865 thriller VV or plots and counterplots, which was published anonymously by Alcott. Um, huh. I think because if people knew she was a woman writer, they'd be less likely to read it, probably. Um, probably, yeah. Yeah. And it, so the story focuses on this Scottish aristocrat who's trying to prove that a mysterious woman has killed his fiance and cousin, but it turns <laughs> out to be a parody because the detective in the case is not as concerned with solving the crime as they are with, like, setting up a way to reveal the solution with dramatic flourish. <laughs> huh. Sounds pretty good. Uh, imp- important question. Yeah. Did this mysterious person kill his fiance and kill his cousin or kill his fiance who is his cousin? You know, I had that thought. I I don't know. The site just said his fiance and cousin. So because if can, he's an aristocrat, <laughs> probably there's a both. decent chance. Probably both. Yeah. His fiance cousin. <laughs> who knows? His um, cousance. Cousance. Oh, Beyonce. It sounds like a name. (laughs) (laughs) So it's around this time that she gets crazy famous with Little Women, of course. But she actually wasn't all that comfortable with fame. And she would reportedly sometimes act like a servant when fans would come to her house. She'd be like, I don't know where Louise is. I'm just sweeping the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love. That's kind of That's a baller move. She's like, I don't want to deal with these people talking to me. Like, just no. Um. So Little Women, as we know, inspired, well, actually, I didn't know it was this many, inspired film versions in 1933, 1949, 1994, 2018, and 2019. So there are five okay. different movies of it. The novel also inspired television series in 1958, 1970, 1978, 2017, and 2022. So five series. So, like, half of the actors in America have yeah. worked on a film or television version. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, this yeah. Totally, book. totally. Like, we will not have made it until we've been an A Little Women of some sort. <laughs> um, it also inspired a Broadway musical in 2005 and a BBC sure. Radio 4 version in 2017. Crazy. So, wow. Clearly, she's one of these writers who stands the test of time. Yeah. That's a lot yeah. of adaptations. Um, People, so today. Uh, I guess, I guess, I guess that's a pretty good book or something. Yeah. So today you will be reading a story that is another example of her being awesome and cutting edge. When it was published in 1869, it was largely overlooked because nobody knew what it was yet, but it was rediscovered in 1998 and has since become a really influential example of an early like mummy's curse narrative. So, which you'll love because you love the mummy. <laughs> I know you love a uh, mummy. All right, so we've got. Uh, She's a genre hopper. She's really a genre hopper. We've got hopper. like feminist Domestic? realism. Uh huh. Yeah. We've we've got detective thriller, and yep. we've got supernatural mummy curse. Correct. Correct. She said versatility. Dope. That's me. <laughs> so this is Lost in a Pyramid or the Mummy's Curse. Enjoy. All right, let's start this fire. Yay! 
Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse by Louisa May Alcott. Oh, section one. And what are these, Paul? Asked Evelyn, opening a tarnished gold box and examining its contents curiously. Seeds of some unknown Egyptian plant, replied Forsyth, with a sudden shadow on his dark face as he looked down at three scarlet grains lying in the white hand lifted to him. Where did you get them? Asked the girl. That is a weird story, which will only <laughs> haunt you if I tell it, said Forsyth with an absent expression that strongly excited the girl's curiosity. I was going to say, the best way to make someone want to know something is, I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, <laughs> will only haunt you if I tell it? Well, now you have now you, to tell me. Now you me. gotta tell it, right? <laughs> Duh. <clears throat> oh, yep, sure enough. Please tell it. I like weird <laughs> tales and they never trouble me. Aw, do tell it. Your stories are always so interesting, she cried, looking up with such a pretty blending of entreaty and command in her charming face that refusal was impossible. Oh, she sounds adorable. <laughs> I love her voice. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> You'll be sorry for it. And so shall I, perhaps. I warn you beforehand that harm is foretold to the possessor of those mysterious seeds, said Forsyth, smiling, even while he knit his black brows and regarded the blooming creature before him with a fond yet foreboding glance. <laughs> Tell on, I'm not afraid of these pretty atoms, she answered with an imperious nod. <laughs> To hear is to obey. Let me read the facts, and then I will begin, returned Forsyth, pacing to and fro with a far-off look of one who turns the pages of the past. Evelyn watched him a moment, and then returned to her work, or play, rather, for the task seemed well suited to the vivacious little creature, half-child, half-woman. Oh, Britney Spears. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to an, to attempt a Britney Spears accent, um, accent or impersonation of any kind. Well, she's sort of. Where's she from? I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. I don't know, but she's lovely and nasal and wonderful, and I would die for her. And I'm so happy she's free. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> <laughs> she invented adolescence. That's just what we know. She invented adolescence? Yes, she did. <laughs> um, she should be sued. With that song. <laughs> no, it's, beauti it's a, a beautiful time. It's a beautiful time. You're in a liminal space. You're growing. <laughs> Dear listener, you can tell which one of us had more fun in high school. Guilty. I did have a lot of fun <laughs> in high school. <laughs> While in Egypt, commenced Forsyth slowly, I went one day with my guide and Professor Niles to explore the Cheops. Niles, I like that Niles is a professor in Egypt with yeah. the Nile River. <laughs> ah. Niles had a mania for antiquities of all sorts and forgot time, danger, and fatigue with the ardor of his pursuit. We rummaged up and down the narrow passages, half choked with dust and close air, reading inscriptions on the walls, stumbling over shattered mummy cases, or coming face to face with some shriveled specimen perched like a hobgoblin on the little shelves where the dead used to be stowed away for ages. <laughs> I was desperately tired after a few hours of it and begged the professor to return. But he was bent on exploring certain places and would not desist. We had but one guide, so I was forced to say. But Jamal, my man, seeing how weary I was, proposed to us to rest in one of the larger passages while he went to procure another guide for Niles. We consented. 
and assuring us that we were perfectly safe if we did not quit the spot, Jamal left us, promising to return speedily. The professor sat down to take notes on his researches, and stretching myself on the soft sand, I fell asleep. <laughs> I was roused by that indescribable thrill which instinctively warns us of danger, and springing up, I found myself alone. One torch burned faintly where Jamal had stuck it, but Niles and the other light were gone. A dreadful sense of loneliness oppressed me for a moment. Then I collected myself and looked well about me. A bit of paper was pinned to my hat, which lay near me, and on it, in the professor's writing, were these words. I've gone back a little to refresh my memory on certain points. Don't follow me till Jamal comes. I can find my way back to you, for I have a clue. Sleep well and dream gloriously of the pharaohs. N.N. That's ominous. Mm, yeah. I laughed at first over the old enthusiast, then felt anxious and restless, and finally resolved to follow him, for I discovered a strong cord fastened to a fallen stone and knew that this was the clue he spoke of. Leaving a line for Jamal, I took my torch and retraced my steps, following the cord along the winding ways. I often shouted, but received no reply, hmm. and pressed on, hoping at each turn to see the old man poring over some musty relic of antiquity. <laughs> Suddenly, the cord ended, and lowering my torch, I saw that the footsteps had gone on. Rash fellow, he'll lose himself to a certainty, I thought, really alarmed now. As I paused, a faint call reached me, and I answered it, waited, shouted again, and a still fainter echo replied. Oh, he's getting further away. <laughs> he's getting further and further away. Dude, you're going the wrong direction. Wrong way. Niles. Dumbass. God, it's like these people have never seen a horror movie. How old is he? I feel I would feel better about making fun of him if I knew he wasn't like a truly doddering old man. <laughs> Niles? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen Stargate? No, I have not. No. Okay. So in my head, this is um, this is Niles is like Daniel Jackson. Hmm. Uh, Daniel Jackson, who was played by James Spader back in 1994, I think. Oh, um, okay. So in my head, Niles is that old. Got it. So not a doddering old man, just just really um, excitable and enthusiastic and probably with nasty allergies. Gotcha. All right. We can make fun of him then. <laughs> yeah, we can. It's, it's OK. To, it's OK to make fun of James Spader. <laughs> um, Niles was evidently going on, misled by the reverberations of the low passages. No time was to be lost, and forgetting myself, I stuck my torch in the deep sand to guide me back to the clue, and ran down the straight path before me, whooping like a madman as I went. <laughs> I, did not, <laughs> I did not mean to lose sight of the light, but in my eagerness to find Niles, I turned from the main passage and, guided by his voice, hastened on. His torch soon gladdened my eyes, and the clutch of his trembling hands told me what agony he had suffered. Let us get out of this horrible place at once, he said, wiping the great drops oh. off his forehead. Come, we're not far from the clue. I can soon reach it, and then we are safe. But as I spoke, a chill passed over me, for a perfect labyrinth of narrow paths lay before us. Trying to guide myself by such landmarks as I had observed in my hasty passage, I followed the tracks in the sand till I fancied we must be near my light. No glimmer appeared, however, and kneeling down to examine the footprints nearer, I discovered, to my dismay, that I had been following the wrong ones. For among those marked by a deep boot heel were prints of bare feet. We had had no guide there, 
and Jamal wore sandals. <gasps> Rising, I confronted Niles with the one despairing word, lost. As I pointed from the treacherous sand to the fast waning light. Aw, dang, he is old. Never mind. Yeah. I thought the old man would be overwhelmed, but to my surprise, he grew quite calm and steady, thought a moment, and then went on, saying quietly, Other men have passed here before us. Let us follow their steps, for if I do not greatly err, they lead toward great passages where one's way is easily found. Do they? Do they? <laughs> On we went bravely till a misstep threw the professor violently to the ground with a broken leg. Oh my god! <laughs> nearly extinguished the torch. My god! This fucker tripped himself in, into a broken leg. <laughs> well, broken that's leg. Some, guess that's it's some trip. <laughs> guess it's time to shoot him. Oh my god. Like a horse. No. Step in a gopher hole, broken leg. Now I'm fond of him. (laughs) It was a horrible predicament, and I gave up all hope as I sat beside the poor fellow, who lay exhausted with fatigue, remorse, and pain, for I would not leave him. Paul, he said suddenly, if you will not go on, there is one more effort we can make. I remember hearing that a party lost, as we are, saved themselves by building a fire. The smoke penetrated further than sound or light, and the guide's quick wit understood the unusual mist. He followed it and rescued the party. Make a fire and trust to Jamal. A fire without wood, I began. But... (laughs) But he pointed to a shelf behind me, which had escaped me in the gloom, and on it I saw a slender mummy case. I understood him, for these dry cases, which lie about in hundreds, are freely used as firewood. Reaching up, I pulled it down, believing it to be empty, but as it fell, it burst open and out rolled a mummy. Oh, God. <laughs> do, 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 do. Go to virgin. Oh, God. <laughs> Accustomed as I was to such sights, it startled me a little, for danger had unstrung my nerves. Also, because I pulled down a box uh, and a fucking yeah. mummy fell out of it. <laughs> right. Like, I feel like she was a little too casual with introducing <laughs> this mummy. <laughs> She's like, you know, a mummy. <laughs> You know, just a dead body wrapped in bandages. I mean, I guess they are like in the in the tombs and stuff. So, yeah, but even like if I was walking around, if I was walking around in a cemetery and like with a dog and the dog was digging in the ground and pulled out a fucking skull, I'd still be freaked out. (laughs) Right. Yeah, there are lots of bodies around, but you still don't expect to see one right in front of you like that. It's true. Jesus. Danger had unstrung my nerves. Laying the little brown chrysalis aside, I smashed the case, lit the pile with my torch, and soon a light cloud of smoke drifted down the three passages which diverged from the cell-like place where we had paused. While busied with the fire, Niles, forgetful of pain and peril, had dragged the mummy nearer and was examining it with the interest of a man whose ruling passion was strong even in death. Come and help me unroll this. I have always longed to be the first to see and secure the curious treasures put away among the folds of these uncanny winding sheets. This is a woman, and we may find something rare and precious here, he said, beginning to unfold the outer coverings from which a strange aromatic odor came. Okay, is this a normal thing? (laughs) Right, like, no shit, no shit, there's an odor, you're un- unrolling a dead body but also why are you grave robbing <laughs> yeah right i mean i guess yes it makes sense that you know i i know that mummies had stuff wrapped in the bandages with them especially if they were you know important yeah. people but like would you also, just 
pull, How pull the he... mummy off the shelf and unwrap it right there? Why does he know it's a woman, too? He just says it so confidently. I don't maybe, like it. Maybe she's got really big boobs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She got them you know. mummy titties. Yeah, because <laughs> those definitely would still be prominent after oh, 6,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> Boobies withstand the test of time. <laughs> yeah, they would. Uh, well, I guess if they were implants. Did they have those back then? <laughs> um, no, I mean, he's he's used to looking at mummies. Maybe he can just tell the difference. Yeah, Maybe that's that. his party trick. He's got that sixth sense. <laughs> that's his party trick. He can stand yeah. in a dark room and go, right there, there's a hottie. Yeah. <laughs> Big boobed mummy, three o'clock. <laughs> yep. Most useless superpower ever. Ever. <laughs> Reluctantly, I obeyed, for to me, there was something sacred in the bones of this unknown woman. But to beguile the time and amuse the poor fellow, I lent a hand, wondering as I worked if this dark, ugly thing had ever been a lovely, soft-eyed Egyptian girl. We've already established, yes, she was For a For sure, 100%, yep. From the fibrous folds of the wrappings dropped precious gums and spices which half intoxicated us with their potent breath, antique coins, and a curious jewel or two which Niles eagerly examined. All the bandages but one were cut off at last, and a small head lay bare, round which still hung great plates of what had once been luxuriant hair. The shriveled hands were folded on the breast, and clasped in them lay that gold box. Ah, cried Evelyn, dropping it from her rosy palm with a shudder. <laughs> Nay, don't reject the poor little mummy's treasure. I never have quite forgiven myself for stealing it, or for burning her, said Forsyth. Oh. <laughs> painting rapidly as if the recollection of that experience lent energy to his hand. <laughs> Burning her? Oh, Paul, what do you mean? asked the girl, sitting up with a face full of excitement. I'll tell you. While busied with Madame La Mummy, our <laughs> fire had burned low, for the dry case went like tinder. A faint, far-off sound made our hearts leap, and Niles cried out, The pile on wood! Jamal is tracking us! Don't let the smoke fail now, or we are lost! There is no more wood. The case was very small, and it is all gone, I answered, tearing off such of my garments as would burn readily and piling them upon the embers. Niles did the same, but the light fabrics were quickly consumed and made no smoke. Yeesh. Burn that, commanded the professor, <laughs> pointing to the mummy. No hesitation. I hesitated a moment. <laughs> Not by him, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Again came a faint echo of a horn. Life was dear to me. A few dry bones might save us, and I obeyed him in silence. A dull blaze sprung up, and a heavy smoke rose from the burning mummy, rolling in volumes through the low passages and threatening to suffocate us with its fragrant mist. My brain grew dizzy. The light danced before my eyes. Strange phantoms seemed to people the air, and in the act of asking Niles why he gasped and looked so pale... I lost consciousness. <gasps> Evelyn drew a long breath and put away the scented toys from her lap as if their odor oppressed her. <laughs> Forsyth's swarthy face was aglow with the excitement of his story, and his black eyes glittered as he added with a quick laugh, That's all. Jamal found us and got us out. And we both forswore pyramids for the rest of our days. But the box! How came you to keep it? Asked Evelyn, <laughs> eyeing it askance as it lay gleaming in a streak of sunshine. Oh, I brought it away as a souvenir, and Niles kept the other trinkets. But 
you said harm was foretold to the possessor of those scarlet seeds, persisted the girl, whose fancy was excited by the tale, and who fancied all was not told. (laughs) Among his spoils, Niles found a bit of parchment which he deciphered, and this inscription said that the mummy we had so ungallantly burned was that of a famous sorceress who bequeathed her curse to whoever should disturb her rest. (gasps) Of course, I don't believe that curse has anything to do with it, but it's a fact that Niles never prospered from that day. He says it's because he has never recovered from the fall and fright, and I dare say it is so, but I sometimes wonder if I am to share the curse, for I have a vein of superstition in me, and that poor little mummy haunts my dreams still. A long silence followed these words. Paul painted mechanically, and Evelyn lay regarding him with a thoughtful face. But gloomy fancies were as foreign to her nature as shadows are to noonday. She presently laughed a cheery laugh, saying as she took up the box again, Why don't you plant them and see what wondrous flower they will bear? I doubt if they will bear anything after lying in a mummy's hand for centuries, replied Forsyth gravely. Let me plant them and try. You know wheat has sprouted and grown that was taken from mummy's coffins. Why should not these pretty seeds? I should so like to watch them grow. May I, Paul? That's a bizarre fact for a little girl to know. (laughs) I'm getting the feeling that Evelyn is a stand-in for like a young Louisa May Alcott. Oh, oh, I'm sure. Well, she did like... um, uh, what's her name? Joe in Little Women is mm-hmm. sort of loosely based on Louise totally, May Alcott. Totally, like, yeah. Lots of writers put stand-ins for themselves. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> May I, Paul? No, I'd rather leave that experiment untried. I have a queer feeling about the matter and don't want to meddle myself or let anyone I love meddle with these seeds. Mm. They may be some horrible poison or possess some evil power, for the sorceress evidently valued them since she clutched them fast even in her tomb. Now, (laughs) you are foolishly superstitious and I laugh at you. Be generous. <laughs> Give me one seed just to learn if it will grow. See, I'll pay for it. Mm, and not good. Ah. I'm going to I'm going to take another read at that. Um okay. because it's not I'll pay for it. It's see, I'll pay for it. Like if anything right. goes wrong, it'll be my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Evelyn, who now stood beside him, dropped a kiss on his forehead as she made her request with the most engaging air. But Forsyth would not yield. He smiled and returned the embrace with her lover-like warmth, then flung the seeds into the fire and gave her back the golden box, saying tenderly, My darling, I'll fill it with diamonds (laughs) or bonbons if you please, but I will not let you play with that witch's spells. You've enough of your own, so forget the pretty seeds and see what a light of the harem I've made for you. Evelyn frowned and smiled, and presently the lovers were out in the spring sunshine, reveling in their own happy hopes, untroubled by one foreboding fear. Okay, okay, I, I, the, okay, the word lover, I understand, like, meant people who love each other, so that's fine, but, like, I just don't like that this older male cousin and his young female cousin are, like, lovers. Like, it just, it's just, hit, it's hitting my ear wrong. It's, are they cousins? <laughs> I thought so. Did that, did that come up somewhere when I was reading without paying attention? <laughs> Maybe, I, I don't know why I think it, uh, unless it had been said. I thought they were cousins. Yeah, I thought it was his his little cousin. Oh, okay. I assume that they are, in fact, lovers in the modern sense. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, well, we'll see. Um, but also, it's, I am, it's a I am cons- 
we'll see what's hap- <laughs> what happens in part two. But I'm also consistently fighting the urge to go, but it isn't my fault I was given those beans. You persuaded me to trade away my cow for beans, and without those beans, I'm like, this is bad. Stay away from the beans. <laughs> I mean, they're seeds, but still, it's the same vibe. <laughs> it's, it's the same vibe, yeah. Oh, boy, well, all right. At least, at least he didn't just toss them out the window, though. If he had tossed them out the window, by morning there'd be a, you know, beanstalk. Yeah, true. True. Um, this right. way, he just burned them like he did the mummy who owned them. It's why it's wild. Human beings really do have the audacity. We really do. <laughs> yeah, like, come on, man. If you're if you've got even a little superstition in you, you gotta know that that was not a good plan. Right. I'm not superstitious. I'm a little stitious. <laughs> Just a little stitious, but even a little stitious is enough to know yeah. that you shouldn't have burned those seeds. <laughs> All right, let's see. In fairness, we have the benefit of knowing that there is still a decent chunk of story left, which means burning them was right. not the end. Right. I, oh, part two. <laughs> I have a little surprise for you, love, said Forsyth. Oh, yes, cousin. Huh. And it's... <laughs> His wedding day coming up, but it doesn't say hers. So you, you you were right. I was wrong. Wait, I don't know. Okay, let's keep going. Yeah, this is confusing. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what it is. I have a little surprise for you, love, said Forsyth as he greeted his cousin three months later on the morning of his wedding day. And I have one for you, she answered, smiling faintly. How pale you are. How thin you grow. All this bridal bustle is too much for you, Evelyn. Nope, he they're is, getting married. He is getting married to her. Okay, yep. okay. Ugh. I guess that's fine. I think it's your fault, actually, because you gave her, like, a really cute little girl voice. And so I was like, this is ick, because I thought she was, like, six years old. Okay, so this is a woman who is his cousin who he is getting married to. Okay, I got it. Well, <laughs> a, a, a woman, but a woman by um, the standards of 150 years ago. Like, I'm still thinking she's probably 16. Uh, you're right. She's probably, yeah, you're right. She's probably an adolescent, that magical time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Not a girl, not yet a woman. All right. How pale you are and how thin you grow. All this bridal bustle is too much for you, Evelyn, he said with fond anxiety as he watched the strange pallor of her face and and pressed the wasted little hand in his. I am so tired, she said, and leaned her head wearily on her lover's breast. Neither sleep, food, nor air gives me strength, and a curious mist seems to cloud my mind at times. She's Barbosa. She's Barbosa in parts of the Caribbean. (laughs) (laughs) I feel nothing. (laughs) The living dead. Yeah. Mama says it is the heat, but I shiver even in the sun, while at night I burn with fever. Paul, dear, I'm glad you are going to take me away to lead a quiet, happy life with you, but I'm afraid it will be a very short one. Oh, God. (laughs) My fanciful little wife. You are tired and nervous with all this worry. But a few weeks of rest in the country will give us back our blooming Eve again. Have you no curiosity to learn my surprise? He asked to change her thoughts. The vacant look stealing over the girl's face gave place to one of interest. But as she listened, it seemed to require an effort to fix her mind on her lover's words. You remember the day we rummaged in the old cabinet? Yes, and a smile touched her lips for a moment. And how you wanted to plant those queer red seeds I stole from the mummy? I remember. And her eyes kindled with sudden fire. Well, I tossed them into the fire, as I thought, and gave you the box, but when I went back to cover up my picture and found one of those seeds on the rug... A sudden fancy to gratify your whim led me to send it to Niles and ask him to plant and report on its progress. Oh, he's still kicking? Wow. 
Yeah, Niles is still alive. He okay, hasn't great. done super well, but you know. Right, he's not he, thriving. Okay. He's not thriving, but he recovered from his broken leg and PTSD. <laughs> Today I hear from him for the first time, and he reports that the seed has grown marvelously, has budded, and that he intends to take the first flower, if it blooms in time, to a meeting of famous scientific men, after which he will send me its true name and the plant itself. From his description, it must be very curious, and I am impatient to see it. You need not wait. I can show you the flower in its bloom. And Evelyn beckoned with a mechant smile hmm. so long a... Look at ah, yeah. Evil. Mechant. Mechant in French means evil in English. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Evil smile. Okay. And Evelyn beckoned with the machant smile so long a stranger on her lips. Much okay. amazed, Forsyth followed her to her own little boudoir, and there, standing in the sunshine, was the unknown plant. Almost rank in their luxuriance were the vivid green leaves on the slender purple stems, and rising from the midst, one ghostly white flower, shaped like the head of a hooded snake, with <gasps> scarlet stamens like forked tongues, and on the petals glittered spots like dew. Run, run. That thing is, that thing is Seymour. <laughs> that thing is going to eat you. It's literally going to eat you. <laughs> a strange, uncanny flower. Has it any odor, asked Forsyth, bending to examine it and forgetting in his interest to ask how it came there. That's probably important. Yeah. None. And that disappoints me. I am so fond of perfumes, answered the girl, caressing the green leaves which trembled at her touch while the purple stems deepened their tint. All right. All right. It's a little too erotic for my taste, but... <laughs> Erotic flowers. Yeah. It's very George O'Keefe. <laughs> <laughs> now tell me about it, said Forsyth, after standing silent for several minutes. I had been before you and... Ah. I had been before you and secured one of the seeds, for two fell on the rug. I planted it under a glass in the richest soil I could find, watered it faithfully, and was amazed at the rapidity with which it grew when once it appeared above the earth. I told no one, for I meant to surprise you with it. But this bud has been so long in blooming, I have had to wait. It is a good omen that it blossoms today, and as it is nearly white, I mean to wear it for I've learned to love it, having been my pet for so long. I would okay. not... Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I would not wear it, for in spite of its innocent color, it is an evil-looking plant with its yeah. adder's tongue and unnatural dew. Wait till Niles tells us what it is. Then pet it if it is harmless. Perhaps my sorceress cherished it for some symbolic beauty. Those old Egyptians were full of fancies. It was very sly of you to turn the tables on me this way, but I forgive you, since in a few hours I shall chain this mysterious hand forever. How cold it is. Come out into the garden and get some warmth and color for tonight, my love. But when night came... No one could reproach the girl for her pallor, for she glowed like a pomegranate flower. Her mm. eyes were full of fire, her lips scarlet, and all her old vivacity seemed to have returned. A more brilliant bride never blushed under a misty veil. And when her lover saw her, he was absolutely startled by the almost unearthly beauty which transformed the pale, languid creature of the morning into this radiant woman. I don't like it. I know it's good, but I don't like it. I'm suspicious. <laughs> don't be suspicious. Don't, don't be, be suspicious. suspicious. Uh, don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> 
They were married, and if love, many blessings, and all good gifts lavishly showered upon them could make them happy, then this young pair were truly blessed. But even in the rapture of the moment that made her his, Forsyth observed how icy cold was the little hand he held, how feverish the deep color on the soft cheek he kissed, and what a strange fire burned in the tender eyes that looked so wistfully at him. Possessed. Blythe. Possessed. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Blythe and beautiful as a spirit, the smiling bride played her part in all the festivities of that long evening, and when at last life and color began to fade, the loving eyes that watched her thought it but the natural weariness of the hour. As the last guest departed, Forsyth was met by a servant who gave him a letter marked Haste. Tearing it open, he read these lines from a friend of the professor's. Dear Sir, poor Niles died suddenly two days ago while at the scientific club and his last words were, Tell Paul Forsyth to beware of the mummy's curse for this fatal flower has killed me. Mm-hmm. The circumstances of his death were so peculiar that I add them as a sequel to this message. For several months, as he told us, he had been watching an unknown plant, and that evening he brought us the flower to examine. Other matters of interest absorbed us till a late hour and the plant was forgotten. The professor wore it in his buttonhole, a strange white serpent head blossom with pale glittering spots, which slowly changed to a glittering scarlet till the leaves looked as if sprinkled with blood. It was observed that instead of the pallor and feebleness which had recently come over him, that the professor was unusually animated and seemed in an almost unnatural state of high spirits. Mm. Near the close of the meeting, in the midst of a lively discussion, he suddenly dropped, as if smitten with apoplexy. He was conveyed home insensible. And after one lucid interval in which he gave me the message I have recorded above, he died in great agony, raving of mummies, pyramids, serpents, and some fatal curse which had fallen upon him. After his death, livid scarlet spots like those on the flower appeared on his skin, and he shriveled like a withered leaf. At my desire, the mysterious plant was examined and pronounced by the best authority one of the most deadly poisons known to the Egyptian sorceresses. The plant slowly absorbs the vitality of whoever cultivates it, and the blossom, worn for two or three hours, produces either madness or death. Down dropped the paper from Forsyth's hand. He read no further, but hurried back into the room where he had left his young wife. As if worn out with fatigue, she had thrown herself upon the couch and lay there motionless, her face half hidden by the light folds of the veil which had blown over it. Evelyn, my dearest, wake up and answer me. Did you wear that strange flower today? whispered Forsyth, putting the misty screen away. There was no need for her to answer, for there, gleaming spectrally on her bosom, was the evil blossom, its white petals spotted now with flecks of scarlet, vivid as drops of newly spilt blood. But the unhappy bridegroom scarcely saw it, for the face above it appalled him by its utter vacancy drawn and pallid as if with some wasting malady the young face so lovely an hour ago lay before him aged and blighted by the baleful influence of the plant which had drunk up her life no recognition in the eyes no words upon the lips no motion of the hand only the faint breath the fluttering pulse and wide open eyes betrayed that she was alive Alas, for the young wife, 
the superstitious fear at which she had smiled had proved true. The curse that had bided its time for ages was fulfilled at last, and her own hand wrecked her happiness forever. Death in life was her doom, and for years Forsyth secluded himself to tend with pathetic devotion the pale ghost who never, by word or look, could thank him for the love that outlived even such a fate as this. The end. Oh, oh, God. Oh. <laughs> I need to just like, just keen and moan for a couple of minutes. <laughs> oh, so sad. Wow. I like, I realized I hadn't spoken in like four paragraphs because I was just like, just said there was nothing to make fun of. I was just so sad. <laughs> No, that's okay. Sometimes when we hit when we hit a story <sighs> that gets really tense for a while, it's just like, yeah. you know what? There's no need to talk. Let's just finish out the story. Dude, let's just that get was... through this bit. Well, and uh, what really struck me actually was that, like, yes, it was a fun, you know. Oh, they laughed at the ghost, the the ghost story or the mummy story, and then it turned out to be true. But, but that, like, it ends on that note of emphasizing the love. Like, it's actually the the last line is not even about how terrible, like how gross it is, how gross she got and how terrible the, her fate was, but that like Forsyth loved her past it. It was just very like, yeah. very sweet and tragic yeah. that like, oh man, like how's he ever going to forgive himself for this? Cause it's kind of his fault. <laughs> it's kind of his fault. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably in fairness, that's probably part of why he stuck yeah. around long after right. the curse had taken hold. Is there? He did tell you know, her not to mess with the beans. He told her. He, d- he did. He did. Mm. Oh, yeah, she yeah, was yeah. warned. But if he had just fucking left him there. Yeah. I mean, he should. They shouldn't have burned the mummy in the first place. So. Shouldn't have burned the mummy in the first place. Should have. Should have stayed where his guide told him to, because the yeah. locals always know what they're about. Right. Right, because I'm trying to trace this back. Like, what was his initial mistake? Because he said when he didn't want to burn the mummy, but he was like, we're going to die if we don't get smoke to to the guy trying to find us. So it's like right. initially straying from the path was what caused all of this. Like, that was the mistake for which yeah, he if, finally paid. If they had just listened to the guide and stayed yeah. where they were, none of yep. that would have happened. A lot um, of Into the Woods references. Mother said never stray from the path. <laughs> Mother said straight straight ahead, straight from the path and be misled. I should have I think you found I think you found your niche acting wise. Young women. I think you should play young women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should I should play more teenage girls. You really should. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> that was a great story though. Really good writing, but like so funny in that tonally it's so different from little women like what you would know louisa may alcott for <laughs> yeah yeah like the girl not, the girl's versatile not yep. the not the sort of realistic domestic drama yeah. that um that i would have expected from yeah so no, what did you great. think listener she's did you great. enjoy that one did you have fun i did um Please let us know your thoughts by shooting us a message on any of the social media accounts. Uh, mm-hmm. Just look for Campfire Classics on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those things. Or send us an email at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and let us, uh, let us know what you thought. Um, let us yeah. know if you knew just how versatile Louisa May Alcott was. I sure didn't. Um, yeah. And while you're at it, please include this week's passcode, which is erotic flower. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Erotic and deadly. Le petit mot. Erotic. Erotic and deadly. Yeah. Yeah. Good story. Good times. I liked it. Thank you. Fun one. Give us your thoughts. Oh, and uh, while you're at it, you know, like and subscribe. And please do tell five friends that they should come listen to Campfire Classics. And um, go ahead and have them start with this episode because yeah. uh, it was a fun one. And I think this would be an easy onboard. Um, that's all from me. Emily, you got anything to say before we sign off? 
you're all wonderful. Keep on listening. Keep on listening. And until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah! I had to make it turn into Mario. <laughs> it was too close. <laughs>